Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business podcast from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and from our website, BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. This podcast is brought to you by the Downtown Vancouver Business Improvement Association. The DVBIA supports, promotes, and represents the shared interests of 7,000 businesses and property owners in the central 90-block area of Vancouver's downtown core. Today on the show, Jason Turcott from Cressy Development assesses the federal budget's housing measures, and we take a look at the evolution of the Q, which is striving to make Vancouver a VR powerhouse. There's still time to join us tomorrow for our inaugural BIV Talks event. On Tuesday, March 26th, we've assembled a panel to walk you through how to survive Greater Vancouver's real estate slump. For our second event coming up on April 29th, another panel will explore the 5G dilemma. Again, this is part of our new BIV Talks series. You can register for those events and find out more information at BIV.com events. The conventional banking business has undergone rapid technological change in the last decade. On April 25th, BIV's Business Excellence Series is back with a panel discussion on the next big things in banking and finance. Our discussion will explore the future of banking and finance, policy challenges, the impacts on incumbents, as well as the opportunities for upstarts. For tickets and information, visit BIV.com BES-Banking-Finance. The federal budget last week introduced a number of measures aimed at first-time home buyers as well as housing in general. Jason Turcott, Vice President of Development at Cressy Development Group, joins me now on the line with his take. Jason, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me back. A couple of weeks ago, we talked a little bit about what you were maybe hoping for in the budget. Now that we've seen it, how do you think government really addressed some of the issues that we've seen when it comes to housing and housing affordability? Um, I think it was, uh, uh, you know, it was a decent effort, but I think they're, they're struggling with managing the balance of, uh, uh, you know, providing some, some relief to the, uh, to the people who need some help and getting into the housing market and, and, uh, uh, balancing that with their concerns over household debts and, and generally the, uh, you know, the, uh, the affordability of housing across the country. I think one of the most interesting ideas here is that the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation is going to use up to a hundred, sorry, one point two five billion dollars over three years to take five or ten percent equity stakes in homes for first-time home buyers, essentially allowing them to reduce the cost or size of their mortgage. What do you think of this idea, and what some of the impacts might be? Well, you know, I applaud the, 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 I guess, the creativity of the, of of the. Of the initiative, um, and certainly there will be folks uh, that that you know find this helpful in terms of getting into a, a new home. You know, I guess the the cynic in me would say that probably this helps you know the areas um, you know home buyers in in regions that probably least need it, uh, and I don't mean that insensitively. I, I mean that uh, um, you know where those price points become relevant are in in uh, Marketplaces and, and communities that uh, housing is generally less uh, less costly and um, uh, potentially where, where people are less in dire need of that assistance. You know the, the major urban centers, you know Vancouver, Toronto, um, uh, even even some of the you know the lesser or the smaller uh, major urban center. Uh, you know that that's just not 
those numbers don't even exist. You know, in Vancouver, for instance, there's no nobody going to benefit from that program in, in that market. We there was some anticipation, perhaps, that the government might change or reduce the threshold for the mortgage stress test. They addressed that and said that they are going to continue monitoring the situation. Was that a surprise? Yeah, I think it goes to to what I said at, at, at the outset, and that they're really, you know, teetering this this fine line between trying to give uh, uh, voters. Uh, something to to get excited about, and while maintaining a, a very uh, conservative, you know, position on uh, you know managing household debts and and taking advice from the, the Bank of Canada and on um, where we stand as a as a nation with how much debt load we have and our ability to service that debt load and not creating a situation where we've got uh, a problem. We are seeing um, uh, reports that. Uh, um, more de- defaults on mortgages and houses going through foreclosures, those numbers are starting to rise. And of course, that's a major concern for government and the Bank of Canada and generally that, the implications that that has on the economy. And uh, so I think at this particular time, their their willingness to do something really bold, I think, was was very much tempered by, uh, by fears of, of household debt levels. Mm. We've spoken quite a bit previously about ways that barriers to bringing about more supply, particularly on the rental housing side of things, what those might be, what government could do to maybe encourage more supply. And in the budget, we have $300 million set aside for the housing supply challenge to be determined more information to come. Generally speaking, what do you think of this kind of idea? Well, I think I think it's it's great that they're recognizing we have a problem, but the, it doesn't it doesn't in any way suggest a solution. Um, uh, I'd be curious to see, you know, what they do with that. I mean, uh, three hundred million sounds like a lot, but in the uh, in the context of the entire you know the entire nation, it's not a, a whole lot of money. And and what they do with it is is I think their their willingness and, and even authority or ability to do anything meaningful with it. I think it's going to be challenged. I mean, uh, as you know, most of the delay in, in, in getting housing approved is at the uh, municipal level. And, and I think the best thing that the federal government could do is invest in uh, workers and in uh, training of, of, of workers and attracting new people to the, uh, to, to the trades. Um, and uh, if uh, if that money was applied in, in that manner, I think that might be our best bet because, uh, you know, we have two issues here. And one is um, the, the supply constraint through approvals and also through our, our manpower and our, our labor force, which is extremely limited. And even if those floodgates at the municipal level were to open, uh, open up wide, our ability to produce housing will then be constrained by uh, skilled labor. labor. So. You know uh, what they do with it, I guess, is up in the air at this point. But uh, that was that would be where I would like the focus to be. Mm-hmm. I wonder a little bit too. Again, throwing back to all the times he's spoken to you on the show, but we've talked a lot about reducing red tape, as you just mentioned, reducing permitting times. I know the industry would like to see tax breaks or incentives to try and stimulate more spending and and help out the margins on the rental side. Again, it seems like the challenges and the solutions they're not a surprise to anyone. They're there. So I'm curious too, from that perspective, what kinds of ideas government is expecting from a challenge like this? Yeah, I mean it's it. There's no, there's no silver bullet. I mean, it is, it is, um, you know, and and frankly, UNRWA takes uh, bold decisions and, and frankly, um, at times unpopular ones. Um, 
you know, we we sit back at, at times, you know, in our office here and say, well, what would we do if, you know, if we were mayor? You know, and it's it's an incredibly difficult thing to do because, you know, the the red tape comes from initiatives, and 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 most of those initiatives come from good places. You know, initiatives around green building, initiatives around uh, you know social endeavors, you know, what have you. They they all primarily come from well-intentioned places, but the impact of of tangling all these initiatives together, both at uh, municipal, provincial, and and sometimes federal levels, is that it just creates this web that becomes impossible to to maneuver. And uh, undoing it is is um, very complicated, and and would probably come with with the need to reduce government, and that's never going to be popular with you know people in government. Um, so yeah, I mean it's 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 an impossible equation, but you know, something that we do need to chip away at and uh, um, hopefully they're prepared to do that. We've also seen it to your point about the, the web of government policies at multiple levels. We've seen on the demand side over the last couple of years too, what can happen when different levels of government are potentially out of sync and the mixed signals that can create. So it's an added challenge, I imagine, on the supply side too. If you have municipalities doing one thing, again, perhaps from a place of good intention, provincial governments and the federal government doing different things. It's a lot to take into account. Oh, yeah. And that happens all the time. I mean, where we get where we get initiatives at uh, municipal levels that are aimed to achieve one goal, but they, they go against, uh, for instance, something that happens at the provincial level. Often we find municipalities, um, you know, one, one thing that we run into a lot is municipalities putting in place um, bylaws or procedural rules around um, when you can demolish houses, for example. Um, which completely contradict the Residential Tenancy Act, which is a, obviously a provincial legislation. And so, you know, more and more we're finding, you know, that, that these things, you know, not only are they difficult to maneuver, they actually conflict with one another. The final budget item I wanted to point out was an additional $10 billion over nine years for the Rental Construction Financing Initiative. Government says it will support the construction of an additional 42,500 rental units across Canada. Maybe not the kind of incentive or initiative the industry was hoping on the rental side, but might this help? I think it helps, yeah. I mean, the the, the program has, uh, I think they're finding been. Uh, you know, in their minds, a success and um, has certainly garnered great interest um, and, and does help. Uh, rental rental construction is um, a difficult, uh, you know, asset to underwrite um, from a developer and, and a lender perspective. Uh, the margins are slim and uh, um, the yields are low and uh, any assistance there certainly helps get uh, these projects penciled and we're seeing a shifting of focus for sure away from uh, condo and Part of that is market-driven, obviously, um, but a tool for uh, for builders to uh, rely on um, that helps the pro forma, that helps the long-term yield, um, that does that does lock in a degree of affordability in these units. Uh, I think it's a great a great uh, program. I think they they could have gone much further with addressing things like GST, uh, even potentially looking at ways to incent uh, uh, municipalities and provincial governments to work with. Um, rental housing developers on property taxes. I think there was some misses in there, but certainly it was a it was a, a bolstering of a program that has shown so far to be effective and uh, is having uh, an impact on getting more rental built. So that's uh, that's obviously a good thing.
We're in an election year, of course, and we're going to be hearing from parties pretty quickly about what their policies and promises are if elected. Housing could be one of those areas that's touched on just because it speaks directly to voters, particularly in certain key voting markets. I'm thinking back east more than back here. Do you think we might see any policies or promises made when it comes to housing that might be relevant to the development community? Are you not holding your breath? Well, I'm not going to hold my breath, really, because, and, and that's not to say that we, we won't see promises. I, I think we will. But I think, um, to my earlier point, that is going to, I think, be the underlying theme here. And, and, pardon me, and with good reason. I think it is something that we need to pay attention to. And it's certainly something that needs to be continually monitored and addressed. Um, but we do need to provide some relief. I think, you know, as a, as a society, we are, we are, you know, the taxation has gone... Uh, uh, kind of through the roof, um, you know, and I don't think people really realize how much taxation is, uh, you know, in one form or another is is, is applied to new housing. Um, and I think uh, whether they left an arrow in their quiver here, the Liberal government in their campaigning, um, the GST was one that I think was an obvious, uh, both on rental and on even on just the the, um, the rebate thresholds for new home buyers uh, of new, or sorry, buyers of new new homes. Um, that was an easy one for them to address where that threshold hasn't been moved in a long time and is is in, is due to be increased uh, for that rebate eligibility. Um, you know, those, there's some there's some obvious ones that I think we will see uh, come forward. Um, but I think at the end of the day, once the uh, uh, the newly elected government comes into into power next year, um, whether it be the Liberals again or a new government, they're, they're going to be tempered uh, in what they actually execute because of this uh, fear around affordability. So I'm not going to hold my breath that we're going to see any sweeping changes here. But, you know, it'll be interesting to see what they put on the table as far as uh, election platforms go. For sure. Jason, as always, great to have your thoughts on this. Thanks for coming on. My pleasure. That's Jason Turcott, Vice President of Development at Cressy Development Group. The Cube is a 6,000-square-foot innovation hub for companies in AR, VR, and MR, mixed reality. Its intention is to support startups in this space and to help turn Vancouver into a VR powerhouse. Alan Goldman is the board chair at The Cube. He's also the industry liaison for the research department at Emily Carr, and he joins me in studio today. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. Are we a powerhouse yet? Uh, we're getting there. Okay. Um, you know, there are some reports and statistics that say we are... Uh, Number two in the world globally. Um, I'm not sure if we can rely completely on those statistics <laughs> and, and reports. Um, but I think we have a lot of young companies that are growing in this space. We have more than 200 companies uh, who are, some of them are quite small, um, mm. but they're, some of them are starting to scale. And, and the biggest thing that they lack in this environment is investment. Yeah. And I wonder, too, dealing with top-of-the-line equipment, for example, can be a very expensive endeavor, I imagine, if you're a small company and wanting to build programs for the VR, AR space. Is that one of the biggest barriers, having the equipment and the funding to be able to create what they're trying to create? Um, yeah, that's a great question. Um, so initially, when VR, AR came out, it was more expensive than it is today. Mm -hmm. So you had to have a very 
fast computer with an excellent graphics card and uh, you had to have a headset that cost you at least $1,300. So all in, you're probably looking at an initial investment just to create content between $3,500 and $4,000. And so for some companies, that's a lot of money, right? To get started, just to make stuff. But the costs have been coming down appreciably since then and the technology at the same time has been getting better. So now Vive has introduced a wireless headset. Um, uh, the HoloLens is coming out with a second version. Um, the cost hasn't really gone down, but they've made it more developer-friendly and uh, have, have made it into something really useful for businesses. So I think we're seeing like an upward trend. And um, I think especially in the AR arena, we're going to see some interesting movement in that particular area. Mm, interesting. At the Cube, you of course have a number of companies together in a shared space. Is sharing equipment and sharing costs part of the proposition? Absolutely. So the companies uh, all join BC Tech um, that are tenants in the space and they get access to equipment. We have Lenovo headsets, we have an HTC Vive, we have uh, a green room. And they also, but the thing that's even more critical than the equipment is the knowledge that they can get from each other hmm. you know so it's, it's shared information it's it's i don't know how to do this do you know how to do it it's kind of the idea that rising tides you know float all boats kind of thing sure how willing are companies to share that kind of information um i think in this space because it's so nascent I think they're actually very willing to share that information. I think when it gets into the nitty gritty and the space gets more monetized uh, or there's more monetization, um, then I think it might change. But you have to remember most of these companies are creating content. They're not creating platforms. So by being content creators, they're trying to help each other like create content too because the, the content that one might be creating may be very different from the other. You might have someone in gaming. You might have someone in mining. <laughs> exactly. Like, and we do have exactly that. We have a company called Cloudhead Games, which uh, has had two games that are that have been, you know, downloaded. And so many there are the number three and five downloads on Steam. I think the two games that they have, and then the other company is Lamazoo. Mm. Uh, and Lamazoo, that's what they do. They the they um, are looking at to help mining exploration and resource extraction companies like try to figure out how to like use VR as a tool. Right. Yeah. We've had the founder, Charles Levine, on right. our show to talk about Lamazoo. Really cool. interesting work. Yeah. Are you selective at all in terms of the companies that are allowed to lease space or participate in the cube for perhaps the competitive reason or for other reasons? Um, to date, we haven't been because we're trying the, you know, because the space is so new. And because the area is so new, we're trying to fill it with as many companies as we can. Um, there was a dip uh, in ARVR in uh, the third to fourth quarters of last year. So we kind of saw um, companies just, you know, really who were bootstrapping and looking for investment, just trying to make it, you know, in the space. But I think we're starting to see that upward trend, especially, especially as we enter into the second quarter of this particular year. Okay. When it comes to really understanding the investment and financing space, what are some of the biggest lessons these startups have to learn in order to find success? <laughs> 
Well, I'm no expert in that. I'm merely an organizer and I try to facilitate. But what I will say and, and what I think is uh, really important for these companies to remember is that investors are looking for you to show that, number one, that you have customers. And I think the other thing that they're looking for is to, for you to have organized financials uh, and make sure that um, you have thought about how you've structured your company. And that's something very critical to most of these companies. They're so young and they have such great ambition, but some of them, ha the way they've structured their businesses may be slightly challenging for investors to try to understand and be able to invest into. Others are very savvy that way. They may have had other companies and they see AR, VR as a space and they sort of uh, know how to matriculate into it, if that makes sense. Yeah. It does. You yeah. have an investor series on right now. Tell me a little bit about what it's designed to do. So it's designed to do that very thing, to create financial literacy for those companies. So uh, in the first part of this the series, we um, enabled a lot of the companies by giving them information about how to set up their legal entity. Then we brought in uh, some powerful speakers who, and these are all people in our ecosystem, which is really great and who can show them how to, uh, you know, get themselves ready for success. Um, and then uh, the last workshop that we did, uh, which was really great, we had facilitators who have a lot of experience with pitch decks and other things sitting with them one-on-one, -on -one, like really assisting them with their product or their service or whatever it is. And these people are all it's amazing how much expertise we have in our ecosystem. We don't celebrate that enough. That's that's something that I'm really I'm proud of all the people to give back into our ecosystem, which is really cool. Because um, we've had a lot of tech success here, and we we don't mm -hmm. celebrate it enough. And then uh, the final thing that we'll be doing this Wednesday is we have five investors from five different um, investment. Uh, houses coming in and they're going to listen to the 90 second pitches from the companies. And then from there, they're going to make a choice about the top companies that they want to hear from more in depth. 90 seconds, you have to be pretty concise. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't do it. I'm not that concise, as you can see. <laughs> well, hey, we, I have a show where it's 10 to 12 minutes per segment. So yeah, I'm not exactly in the business of being concise either. <laughs> Investors, there's I mean, there's so many kinds of technology to look at. Obviously, we have a great VR, MR, AR ecosystem here in Vancouver. But is the industry really garnering much investment attention compared to other ones? What's sort of the level that you'd say it's at, particularly considering, as you said, it's a bit of a newer ecosystem with younger companies? Well, I think, you know, we've heard this many times before, but I think that um, as, a, a, as a country, we're slightly risk adverse because um, we're not as ready to see these young companies fail. We want to like nurture them and we have a lot in our ecosystem to try to help them, whether it be government funding through IRAP or through other entities. And so we're used to developing companies, but uh, I think uh, in the Valley um, where two of our investors are going to be from for this particular investment series, they're more, they're less risk adverse. They're, mm -hmm. they're looking for that. They're, planting a lot of seeds and they're looking for that one sort of home run that they can make with a company. So I think some of the things that we think about in our ecosystem are really good. Um, but sometimes we need to be a little more uh, 
ready to take a risk on some of these businesses, you know, and, and look at that. Um, but a lot of them, the tricky part for them is that they're content creators. So as content creators, they're getting paid per piece. Um, some of them have platforms and I think that's really what the investors are looking for is like how they can monetize a particular platform, um, that they, you know, may, may be as scalable and helps the company grow. Interesting. When it comes to the future of the cube, is the idea to ideally graduate companies out? They're big enough, they have their own offices, or is the idea to maybe keep companies of varying sizes in the same space again so you can share lessons learned and experience? That's a great question and something that I haven't thought about in a while because <laughs> uh, we're just being like, you know, just running as fast as we can, trying to get the space up and humming. Um, I would say that. The answer to that question is the latter, that we are, once companies, you know, we have some companies that are almost nine or 10 people in the space now. And that's really at the point where they're probably not going to be there much longer if they grow, right? Because that's kind of hitting hitting the mark where we sort of have to look at like, okay, you guys are ready to fly away and, and you know, here's your wings kind of thing. Mm -hmm. See you later. Yeah. Yeah. Looking at the overall VR landscape, where do you think it's going? There's been so much hype around this industry. There's questions about, is the money in gaming? Is it in enterprise applications? What are your thoughts? Another good question. I think that um, it may be more an augmented reality in some respects or a combination of VR and augmented. Um, we, I think we're looking at uh, the holy grail for all of these people is having it embedded in your glasses. Mm. So um, being able to, you know, which we tried with Google Glass <laughs> yeah. and we all like thought we were complete nerds with them on. So we didn't go for it. But it may be something that we uh, circle back to. Um, and I can, you know, if you look at the the U.S. Patent Office, Apple's being very avaricious in this particular area, taking a lot of patents. So it's going to be interesting to see as things develop, if that's the area. Um, AR is nice because we can all, you know, we're very social beings. We need to look at each other. We need to like take our cues from each other, just like you and I are doing this interview. If we're in VR, it's harder to do that, right? It's a more isolated experience, even though it's more premium because you, with graphics and all those kinds of things. But I, I kind of think it's going to move to mm. AR, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. I wonder if having the reference point of the bigger VR headsets now moving to a Google Glass-like product, it's an easier transition. Yeah, that that's another good point. Um, it, it would be interesting. I mean, my my background uh, is in uh, 3D. I did my master's degree at uh, Emily Carr and sort of focused on 3D. Um, and even then, people didn't want to put on glasses, right? Like they were like fe feeling that nerd factor. So maybe with these huge HMDs that people have been wearing over their heads, as you say, that are so honking, um, maybe, maybe, yeah, we're, we would accept glasses. It, I guess it depends on, on that's if it's going to happen on a consumer level, but right. it is happening on a B2B level. Like if you're a business and you can um, show somebody something in that in three dimensions, they're willing to put on a headset or glasses to do it right now. Like that is happening, whether it be medical mining or otherwise. So, um, 
I think it's the consumer uh, market that's the holy grail for a lot of these companies that we just haven't quite hit yet. But in terms of business, it is happening. It's an exciting space. Alan, thanks so much for coming on the show to give us your insights on it. Thank you. That's Alan Goldman, board chair at The Cube. That's it for our show. Thanks for listening to BIV today. You can get notified of new episodes by subscribing to us on iTunes or Stitcher. And we want to get the word out about our show as much as possible. So if you loved an episode, please feel free to tag us on social media and share the show. You can listen to episodes and read, watch, and listen to more business news over at BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. Thanks for listening.